Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna on News Talk. Yes, you can email the show alive and kicking at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire McKenna Presents. Coming up this morning, I love the work of Professor Tim Spector. Having studied twins, he looked at how two genetically identical people can still have different health outcomes. And he found that, among other things, it came down to differences in gut bacteria. It's led to a raft of research and study. And he'll join me to talk about how we've all been fed a myth about calories in and calories out. And in his latest book, Food for Life, The New Science of Eating Well, he looks at the mindset shift we all need to make around how to nourish our bodies. And MS Ireland is calling on people to take on the challenge of 3,000 push-ups in March, all to help them raise vital funds. And I'll find out more with Dr. Susan Coote. So what kind of a health and wellness week did I have? Well, another whirlwind for me in America. I'm not usually that flashy, but as I mentioned in last week's show, I couldn't resist returning to Michigan with my brother to surprise my sister for her 40th birthday. And... It meant, as my mum was still there helping with the new baby, we were all together for the occasion. And if there's one thing COVID and even the loss of our dad has taught me, it's that family and reasons to celebrate need to be embraced. So that is just what I did. I've had a gorgeous week of hanging out with her, her little family, meeting up with all their lovely friends. We were skiing, we were snowmobiling. And it was really great to be doing completely different things to what I do at home. But really, I was relishing the very simple things like all of us gathered around the table for a meal or watching TV together at night. So, yes, I'm buoyed up from that and feeling very grateful because I think sometimes when you come back from a holiday, you can be nearly dreading going back to your routine or the normal everyday stresses of life. But I remember years ago catching myself on a holiday and saying, no, there's no point in us living from one holiday to the next. You have to take that almost recharge of the batteries and allow it to to power you on. Um, and that's how I'm feeling for now. But I'm also slightly all over the place as with travel and time zones, not to mention the many things I said could wait until after America. So here I am. So my plans for the next while is to plan more. Um, so on a Sunday, I really want to look at my week and include some sort of date night. Uh, It can be anything from a walk to watching TV. We don't necessarily have to be tripping the light fantastic, going to Paris for meals every week. Something with the family. And I want to add in a yoga class. So some of the intentions I set for myself this year were to work on my relationships, mainly with my husband, my kids and my friends. And without planning, I think we can just be like those hamsters going round in a wheel. And I keep saying I'll do these things and they haven't happened. We're turning into March next week. I also keep saying I'll do more yoga. And again, those weeks have been turning into months. So that's getting a weekly schedule too. Now, any lifestyle changes should always start small. Realise it's going to take a while to bed in and go easy on yourself. So I'll keep you posted with how I'm getting on. You can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. Now, MS Ireland is asking people to challenge themselves to doing the push-up challenge, completing 3,000 push-ups in March to raise much-needed funds to enhance the vital services that they provide. Dr. Susan Coote is a physiotherapist specialising in MS and other neurological conditions, and she joins me on the line now. Hello, Susan. How are you? Morning, Claire. Thank you for having me on. So people will be freaked out at the sound of 3,000 push-ups in one month. We'll get to that in a moment and allay their fears. But can we talk a little bit about 
MS and, and what's going on in, in the body when somebody gets a diagnosis of that? Yeah, so MS is a, a condition that affects the brain and the spinal cord. So it effectively affects the cabling system that brings <clears throat> brings messages from our brain down to our muscles or from our various sense organs back up to the brain. So uh, people with MS have a wide range of symptoms. Some of them are hidden. So um, we, we say that, you know, at every school gate, there's somebody with MS. They might have hidden symptoms like uh, problems with their vision, uh, problems with fatigue or low energy, uh, problems with uh, slight problems with their walking. But at the other end of the spectrum, we have people who have problems with walking, problems with muscle strength and balance uh, and problems with feeling and sensation. So it's it's very much uh, it's a spectrum. An awful lot of people live very well and healthy lives with MS. And part of our services that we provide at MS Ireland is giving the, the framework to do that. And how prevalent is MS in Ireland? So we we estimate that there's about 10,000 people living with MS in Ireland. There's probably more, but that's the numbers that have registered um, on the drugs and the drugs payment scheme. So that means that's the number of people who are on disease modifying drugs. And there's lots of good options in terms of how how um, how drugs can help manage MS. But obviously what we're about at MS Ireland is providing other services like physiotherapy, like symptom management programs, uh, ways of, of dealing with all those symptoms so that people can live well and healthy lives. Amazing. So that's where funds raised will go. That's right. Yeah. So we have a range of symptom, uh, range of services around the country. We have 10 regional offices. In each regional office, we have a team of community workers and they do one-on-one casework working with people on the individual things that are challenging them at the moment. We then have a range of physiotherapy and yoga and fitness programs. Uh, exercise is a very, very important part of living well with MS. It's important for all of us, but it's particularly important for people with MS. We run some symptom management and wellness programs who, for example, fatigue management, mindfulness, stress reduction, those kind of things. And then we have a range of, of uh, peer support groups. So for people with MS and their carers and families, uh, getting them together, providing an opportunity for them to talk and, sh- and share information and knowledge. Incredible. And I just know for anybody who gets a a diagnosis, you know, it can be like a bomb going off in, in your life. So to be able to lean on support services like that, I just know makes such a massive difference to people and their families as they find their way through all of this. So tell us about this push-up challenge then. I do think myself personally, 3,000 sounds like a lot. How are we going to break this down? It does. <laughs> so if you think of it, so so the, the challenge is to do 3,000 push-ups in the, month of, in the month of May. So if you take it 30 days in the month, we have roughly 100 push-ups a day. But if you break that down, so if you're somebody who likes to have a cup of tea or several cups of tea, um, if you did 20 push-ups each time you boil the kettle, you would have your 100 done in no time at all. Or if you broke it up to 33 times a day, again, you would have it, uh, have it done in no time at all. And I think the important thing, Claire, is I think, you know, people think of push-ups and they think of lycra-clad gym bodies, but actually we have a push-up for everybody. We have a range of five different variations that can be done by people who are wheelchair users or who uh, don't have good enough balance to stand or, or get down onto the floor. And we have a range that brings from that to the traditional push-up where you're holding the plank position down on the floor with those big strong pecs and arms. Yeah, I always think of that very testosterone fueled in the army, get down and start whacking them out. That's not what we're really no, talking that's about not what here. We're about. Yeah. So, I mean, our, our first push up option is for somebody who's in sitting. So that's leaning. Now, the good news before this, this, I, 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 this probably makes better telly than it does radio, but we do have videos and those videos are, are uh, available on our website. So for more information about the challenge and to get those videos, it's ms-society.ie. But our first version is sitting, 
with your hands on the table in front of you, bending down into that push-up pose, bringing your chest towards the table and pushing it back up. So that can be done by anybody. The second option then is standing with your hands against the wall, so roughly arm's distance from the wall. And again, that typical push-up action of, of, of bringing your chest into the wall and then pushing back away again. Uh, the third option is then kind of like a desk press. So again, standing a good distance away from the desk, keeping that lovely straight uh, line between your ankles, your hips, your shoulders, arms on the table, bending your arms to come down. Then on the ground, we have the the, the uh, fourth variation, which is with your knees bent so that your knees are on the ground. So you're only supporting your body from your knees to your shoulders. And then we have the fifth is the most difficult, which is your uh, your typical push up that you would be familiar with. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a knee person. I stay on the knees um, and I just make it happen unless I'm leaning into something, um, as you said. So there is something for everyone. And I think it's really good that we have a physiotherapist on about this, because why are push-ups good for us? What are we working on in the body? Do you know, it's a great whole body exercise. Um, I think, you know, starting with the basics, we've got our, we've got weight going through our arms and whether whenever we do weight bearing exercise, it's good for building bone density, but it's also good for maybe stimulating muscles that are weak for people who have disabilities. Um, but I think you think of it as being it's for your pecs, it's for your triceps to get rid of those bingo wings. But actually, it's a whole body exercise. You're having to control around your shoulder blades. You're having to uh, um, to work your abdominals and your core muscles. You're having to work the muscles in your in your legs when you're in that either standing or, or, or leg straight position. So it's a good whole body workout, whole body workout and it's building strength. And we know that uh, building strength is an important part of being fit. So we have our aerobic fitness for our heart and lungs for going for our walks, but actually our muscular fitness, our muscular strength is equally as important. And I think that's possibly one of the parts that is less, less easy to build into your everyday routine. So really important that we kind of hold the core tight. Is that right? Yeah. So when you're doing your 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 typical uh, push up, you're looking for that plank position and that plank position is effectively a straight line from your shoulders through your hips, through your knees, down to your ankles. So if you're doing the, the, the push up in standing or to the, uh, the wall press or you're doing the push up to the desk or you're doing the, the push up with your legs straight, it's important to activate your core to keep that stability so that you can then work your arms and your legs. So as well as working your own body, you are going to be sending much needed funds because you're going to get people to sponsor you to do this challenge. That's right. So if you go to our website, uh, you will find a link uh, that will bring you to a registration form that you can order a pack for you to do. And it'll also tell you about how you can set up your fundraising page. But yes, so the main aim of this push-up challenge is, is a fundraiser to, ra- to raise funds for the much much needed services for people with MS in Ireland. And as you said, that website is ms-society.ie. Dr. Susan Coote, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Claire. Coming up after the break, Professor Tim Spector on his latest book, Food for Life, and the myth we've been told about calories in and calories out. Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna on News Talk. Now, I'm such a fan of the work of Professor Tim Spector. Having studied twins, he looked at how two genetically identical people can still have different health outcomes. And among other things, he's found it came down to differences in gut bacteria. It's led to a raft of research and study. And he joins me now to discuss this and his latest book, Food for Life, The New Science of Eating Well. Tim, you're very welcome. It's good to have a chat. Tell us a little bit about the twin study I mentioned there. Yeah, this is a twin study that um, I set up 30 years ago uh, called the 
Twins UK. It's basically a, a UK twin register of adult twins. And we have now about 16,000 that we've accumulated over those 30 years. And half of them are identical, half of them are non-identical. And a lot of the time was looking at why uh, genes were important and looking at the effect of nature v. nurture by comparing the two. And uh, that produced lots of interesting findings about the genetic basis of many conditions and found genes, etc. But it was about 15 years ago I started getting interested in why identical twins who were clones ended up being much more different than we thought they would be. They died at different times. Their aging rates were not very similar. You know, one got cancer, the other one didn't. One was depressed, the other one didn't. One got um, overweight, the other one stayed skinny. So that's when I got sort of started this hunt for some other factor that wasn't genes. So what does it tell us then about gut health or does it indicate that much of our health isn't down to our genetics, it's down to the choices we make in the world we live in? Well, I mean, certainly there's a a proportion of our health that's down to our genes, but I used to think it was much more important than I do now. And so I've sort of changed my view on this. And I think it, um, it, and other studies we did on twins, so first of all, we found that their gut microbes were very different, hardly any any, uh, different to, you know, comparing unrelated people. So the very small genetic effect of your gut microbes. And we all have very unique gut microbes so that we react to foods and our environment very differently. And I think this is really important for us to realize so that, you know, one size fits all approaches to health don't always work because our microbes, which are really these chemical factories, the little mini pharmacies producing all these vitamins, hormones, brain chemicals, immune chemicals, etc., for us, are all going to be working differently. So that really was a bit of an aha moment. And then we combined that with um, a big study of nutrition where we gave a 1,000 twins identical meals and found that we got not only tenfold different responses to the same meal, but there was you know, very little genetic component to how um, the twins were reacting. So, you know, less than 30% of sugar peaks and insulin and glucose were genetic and hardly any less than, you know, between zero and 5% of how we process fats. And so that really was for me the point that I said, okay, this is actually really good news. We, there's no point blaming your parents for everything now. This is stuff that we can do something about. You know, we can all change our our diet and therefore change our microbes and therefore change our health. So actually, it's quite an empowering message that um, the twins have led us to. So why are we hearing so much about gut health and the microbiome now? Is it just that it is emerging science? I think so. I mean, it's been around for about 20 odd years um, in the scientific world. But uh, many people, you know, I started about 13 years ago into this. Um, but many people dismissed it as a fad. They said, oh, it's, you know, it's just promotional stuff. There's often the way in science that, you know, there's a lot of a backlash against something that's very new. And uh, people who aren't in that field try and knock it. Um, but I think we've just had so much really good science particularly in the last um, five to seven years, that really 
those naysayers can't really carry on saying this is a fad and that we now we've seen a not only the you know the science going on at great speed but also awareness in the public of of probiotic foods and awareness of things like um, kefir and uh, kombucha which no one had heard of five years ago you know certainly um, I don't know about Ireland but I guess in Dublin you can find lots of kefirs and kombuchas and pubs and things that you know was unthinkable five years ago and so I think the speed at which the consumer wants to 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 engage in this is is really important and I think people are now getting the message that gut health isn't just about um, bloating and constipation and bad things. It's actually really important to having a good immune system. We learned from COVID that your gut health was crucial in keeping you out of hospital and, you know, eating, having a good diet was, was key for that. We've, we've produced some studies showing that your gut health is probably the most important thing um, that's going to save your life on if you're on cancer treatment, uh, you know, having a really uh, good, diverse gut microbiome. And I think, yeah, the message is striking a chord with the public that I think have lost uh, confidence in, in, in mainstream health and government messaging about calories and fats and sugars, which is, you know, now sort of 50 years out of date and really, you know, doesn't any longer ring true as people realize that there must be more to good health than just uh, calories and uh, eating the odd carrot. Yeah, we haven't quite got to kombucha and kefir in the pubs just yet, but it's certainly on all the supermarket shelves um, and, and convenience stores a lot more. But I still think people think it's a fad or it's a particular type of person that will eat that sort of food and live that, that sort of way. But it's certainly the cogs are turning. I, I always have to remind myself that I live in a, a kind of a health and wellness bubble. Presenting this show, for example, I'm, I'm, I'm faced with this sort of information all the time. But I do think it is starting to seep in to people that this is how we're going to start preventing illness, treating illness. We're going to start looking at the gut and the gut health. So how does somebody know that their gut health isn't working or that they have some dysbiosis there? Okay, well, they can do a microbiome test and um, which, you know, there are a few available on the, on the internet and um, the company I co-founded, Zoe's, does them in, you know, in the UK and um, in Northern Ireland and the US, but uh, not yet in the Republic. But um if you haven't got the money for that and you want to get an idea of what's going on, there are a few general guidelines. And the first is, uh, you know, I do suffer sort of pain and bloating after meals uh, associated with either constipation or diarrhea. Then that means you've probably got something called irritable bowel syndrome. And inevitably, that means you will have poor gut health and your gut microbes won't, won't be diverse and in a good place. And, um, the other w- way to look at this is something that um, we did a, a little campaign on. We're going to do another one called the Blue Poo Campaign, where you um, you can go on the uh, website following up the Blue Poop Challenge and get a recipe to put food dye into, say, muffins or some pastry and dyes it bright blue. You eat it. 
uh, or give it to your kids or whatever, and then you see how long it takes to come out into the toilet, and you time that. And essentially, the longer that time, the less healthy your gut microbes are. And we've found uh, across the UK and the US, um, you know, averages were around 28 hours, which is probably not very healthy. Um, but we had some people at four or five days, and uh, most people ought to be going to the toilet you know, at least once a day. And we know that about half the population don't. So I think there, there are a few general guides to it. And most people are not getting enough fiber, not, have poor gut health across the UK and Ireland. And I think this is increasingly important as you know we eat more and more bad food that has very little nutrients for our gut microbes. You know, this inexorable increase in ultra-processed food is something that really makes our gut health far worse than it need be. So what are the things we should be adding in then to care for our gut health? Well, I think there's five main rules if, or guidelines, I should say, because I don't believe in rules. Um, first is to increase the number of diverse plants you get in your diet. And we've done studies to suggest that the optimum is around, 30, if you can aim for 30, so 25 to 30 different types of plants. And you've, and you, I, you've probably got listeners saying, oh my God, I can't do that. That's impossible. Um, uh, but it's not just about kale. It's um, You have to think of plants as not only vegetables and fruits, but also uh, it's individual nuts and seeds. Each, each type is a different plant. It's things like um, herbs and spices, spice mixes, for example, we know are very good for your gut. And so adding those to meals is important. Adding you know, chunks of coriander will, will increase it. And you've also got other things that people don't regard as plants, like fermented beans that uh, is, a, is coffee. And so uh, having several cups of coffee a day is actually very good for your gut microbes and counts in this uh, goal of trying to get to 30 a week. So that's that. everyone can increase their diversity. They don't all have to get to 30, but that's where we'd like people to go. The second rule is eat the rainbow, uh, which is about having brightly colored foods and slightly bitter tasting foods that contain these defense chemicals called polyphenols that make berries, you know, really bright colors and maybe those bits on lettuce, the leaves that are brightly colored, brightly colored peppers, etc. And then you've got olive oil and um, even dark chocolate, nuts and seeds that all have contain high levels of this. Thirdly, fermented foods. So we mentioned this a little bit, you know, about kefir and kombucha, you know, just getting uh, noticed in Ireland now. Um, but everyone knows about yogurt and, and, you know, proper cheese, not processed cheese, but um, real uh good cheese and they're fa fantastic cheeses in Ireland. Um, but so having small amounts of kefir, kombucha, but try kimchi. You know, this is a Korean dish made with spicy cabbage or the German dish of, of sauerkraut. If it's fermented and not in vinegar, that's super good for you. So having small amounts of that added to your diet really boosts your immune system, reduce inflammation, helps your gut. And then there's two, two other things to do is um, – tries eating your meals 
so that you give your gut time to recover. So squash your meals into 10 hours a day rather than having late night snacks or very early breakfasts so that you've got a clear 14 hours overnight to rest your gut and your gut microbes really appreciate that and your metabolic health improves. And then finally, really, as I said, try and reduce as much as possible your reliance on ultra-processed foods, the, um, the stuff that has no whole ingredients, very little fiber, lots of chemicals in it, uh, because those chemicals like emulsifiers, preservatives, and artificial sweeteners are actually very have a negative effect on your gut microbes. They affect them badly. And uh, so, you know, we've known about them not being particularly good for our health, but we now know they're actually really negative for our gut microbes. So go back to whole real foods, you know, cooking stuff yourself, knowing where it comes from. They're, the, they're my five uh, tips for everyone to improve their gut health regardless. Amazing. Well, I'm sure there'll be people that'll be rewinding if they're on the listen back right now to just to get them again. But I think it's a really, they're really positive guidelines because it's a lot about what can you add in rather than what can you take out. And that's very much part of your message. I want to take a quick break. Um, but when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about your latest book, Food for Life, The New Science of Eating Well. You are listening to Alive and Kicking here on News Talk, where I'm joined by Professor Tim Spector. We'll take a break. Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna on News Talk. Welcome back to Alive and Kicking here on News Talk, where I'm joined on the line by Professor Tim Spector. And we were talking before the break about the microbiome and gut health and, and why it's responsible for so much of us living long and healthier lives and some of the guidelines around how to, to feed that. And there's so much guilt around food and foods being polarised into good and bad categories. One of your chapters in your latest book, Food for Life, The New Science of Eating Well, you talk about why we love food. Um, and I think people can get really overwhelmed between what's right or wrong. And I thought that was a really good place for your book to start. What is the science behind why we love one food over another? Well, as everything about food, it is quite complicated. And, you know, we all, the first food we ever had has a real impression on us. And of course, we wouldn't be alive if none of us liked mother's milk. <laughs> okay. So, and it's sweet and it's sort of fatty and it's, uh, to babies, it's delicious. And, uh, you know, we, we've evolved to like that sort of taste. So, and then those foods light up little reward centers in your brain to say, yes, this is tasty, you know, give me more of it. And that's the way we grow and evolve. And, and most animals function at this other level. So that re that's the reason why we've got this sort of love of sugar, um, which most people grow out of as, you know, as they take less spoonfuls of, of tea in their, in their sugar, but some don't. And, uh, increasingly, you know, kids today have been given ultra-processed foods that keep that sweetness level up for much longer than perhaps our ancestors used to. Um, then you've got other other areas such as um, love of um, sourness might come from um, seeking out things like vitamin C. So we get used to having sour things uh, because we, we associated that in our evolution with various vitamins, for example, um, and sort of acidic products that were actually quite good for us. And then 
we have this sort of love-hate relationship with bitter things. And um, we have to grow to, to like these, these bitter tastes. But very often they are the ones that have these polyphenols that our gut microbes uh, really enjoy and, and like. And so all these processes are going on at the same time as there are the receptors in your in your tongue and your and, and your brain to to like uh, the umami taste we call it the savory goodness taste of meat which we also get through mushrooms and and various other flavorings so you've got these sort of competing forces um, and food manufacturers have managed to do a brilliant job in sort of artificially recreating these sweet spots the so-called bliss points where um, you know, you get the sweetness, the fatness, the uh, maybe a little bit of salt, and you mix it all together, and you can get these incredible uh, flavor mixes that don't occur in nature that will titillate us. So we will just, you know, finish that whole box of Pringles uh, because it's just got that perfect chemical mix in it in these ultra-processed foods. So I think everyone needs to know, in a way, why their brain is being fooled <laughs> uh, into eating things that, in the past used to be good for us um, and now are, are rather harmful. Yeah, not created in nature, created in a lab. And you're reminding me of when I would be feeding my kids when they were really small and I was, you know, making beetroot brownies and my son's first birthday cake was pretty much brown bread. And then the minute they tasted a real, in inverted commas, brownie, they never went back again. It was like a receptor in their brain was open that I could never quite close again. And another food myth, you touched on it earlier that you're very much into blasting away, is this calories in, calories out, eat less, move more mentality that was is so prevalent still in the discussion of, of food and health. Why have we been spoon fed that? Well, it's, I mean, I think there was some science suggesting that was true, um, but about 20 years ago, I think, you know, that it started to get disputed, but it's carried on as a myth because it absolutely suits the food manufacturers uh, in a big way. It suits the diet industry in a massive way. And the whole, you know, low calorie um, market. And so that's why this delusion has carried on, despite Every obesity doctor now, if you go to a conference saying, well, of course, it, you know, uh, it's not true. You know, there isn't this clear link between, uh, you know, exercise and, and calories. And uh, you can't, they all agree, you can't, most people can't count calories accurately uh, and do it well. And even if they do, and you lose calories fast, your body uh, in eighty percent of people, will quickly rebound to where it was, and, and maybe worse because you know it, we're not a furnace. We are a very you know evolutional machine that is highly sophisticated and doesn't want us to lose weight uh, rapidly. It's, that suggests that we're in trouble, and so it sends these alert signals to our body saying you know, ramp up those appetite signals, ramp down your energy usage so that you become, you know, much more um, sedentary. And all these things are designed to stop this pure calorie uh, way of, 
of getting us through the obesity crisis. And everyone that uh, is in this field at the top level now understands this. They know that exercise is not the the way to um, beat obesity, for example. It is you know, 100% the diet first. And I think these things are still a surprise to many people because most of the official um, websites, um, health sites are are still on this, telling people this. And doctors who have so little nutritional training in UK and Ireland um, are still totting up this, this old message, which is just rubbish. And it allows the food manufacturers to sell us unlimited amounts of ultra-processed food if they've just got a low-calorie label on it, despite we knowing now that these low-calorie, ultra-processed foods make us overeat far more than any calories we'd be saving according to the packet. Yeah, there should be more of a focus, as you said before the break, on the quality of the food we're eating and really nourishing our body as opposed to just focusing on a, a certain number of calories to to hit or be under every day. And you also touched on the work you do with the Zoe Project. Um, and there is a chapter in the book entitled How We Are All Unique, which I also think has been missing from the health discussion. What works for your body is very different to what works for mine, we kind of sell a one-size-fits-all. Yeah, and I think I think this is really important for people to, you know, listeners to realise this, that, you know, if they've tried some diet or they've tried some foods and, it, you know, and they're following their sister or their cousin or their neighbour who did this amazing thing and they do it and it doesn't work for them, they feel terrible and it failed, you know. But we're all incredibly unique. So we all have this unique set of gut microbes that when they – have the same food, react in a very different way, might send a very different signal to your brain. And we've all got to realize that, you know, we need to, ourselves to work out what the best way of eating is. Yes, you can eat generally for your gut health, uh, improve your gut microbes, but some of us, you know, will do well on high fat diets, others will do well on um, high carb diets, and others will do well, you know, eating in the morning, others in the evening. We're very individual and we have to start realizing that we, you know, we need to break with just pure tradition um, and work out what works best for us. And most of these very rigid uh, guidelines you see, are, you know, on official sites really don't give any flexibility, and they treat us all as if we're, you know, just these uh, robots that, uh, uh, you know, men and women, two thousand calories. I mean, you know. Those figures, nobody's average, really. So that's what we I, we discovered when we did the, the Zoe studies. We've now done 50,000 people. You know, nobody really has the same profile response to foods. Um, and the, so the averages are meaningless. And it, it kind of perpetuates this feeling of, of guilt that I've mentioned, that somebody's doing something wrong or they're not following the correct health way, whereas really they're not being given the right information. So with the Zoe studies, you sort of get people to track how the food affects their body. And even you yourself have begun to eat very differently. I listened to an interview with you recently and you were talking about, you know, you'd have muesli in the morning and a cup of tea and a, a, a whole grain sandwich and a smoothie at lunch. But all of those things were really spiking for you as opposed to your your wife, I believe you mentioned, who can eat a croissant and it not affect her at all. And we're not really, well, you are talking like this, but the general discussion around health and wellness is not talking like this. 
Yeah, exactly. And I was eating what, you know, I, as a doctor, thought was a healthy meal. And what I was telling my patients was a healthy way to eat. And I realized that, you know, a large amount of what I was eating was extremely non-healthy for me. Um, it might have been absolutely fine for my wife, as you said, um, although some things weren't. I mean, have, orange juice really should be banned. Uh, you know, I think it's probably as bad as having Coca-Cola for breakfast, um, whereas, you know, coffee should be given status as a health drink. Um, so, that, you know, a few things like that. But I, I didn't know any of this uh, when I started out uh, on this journey, you know, about 12 years ago. And I think many other people... You know, would be surprised that um, what they are eating or what they're giving their kids to eat, you know, it turns out to be um, really, really wrong once, you know, everyone understands their own bodies and the science behind it. And I think that's, that's, the, that's a really important message that, um, you know, we need to move with the times. And unfortunately, these guidelines, governments just are far too slow and, you know, the food companies have a stranglehold over them so that, you know, they're making sure that nothing happens quickly. Yeah, and, and the, I, I really hope that we see the Zoe project rolled out globally and that people can really start getting proper information about their, their own health that will be empowering to them. And I know that you're a, a doctor and a scientist, um, so I don't mean to take you into the realm of legislation, but I do see you as a food and health activist. Why don't we have more laws that put people's health over profit when it comes to the production of our food? I mean, you've touched on it a little bit there, but everything from spraying our fruit to hiding sugar and making bogus health claims. Why is this allowed to happen? I mean, not only is it morally wrong, but so much money is spent on treating illness and disease, which could be prevented and refunneled elsewhere. Absolutely agree. Yes. I mean, in the UK, £58 billion is spent every year as a cause of obesity. Um you know, just think what you could do with 58 billion every single year. And, and, and probably the figure for Ireland, you know, uh, could well be 10 billion. And because, uh, you know, obesity rates are quite similar. Um, you know, that's a massive burden that every taxpayer is paying. But because we're not aware of it, um, we, we don't protest. And uh, we, we help, you know, the food companies make massive profits whilst, um, you know, they're not paying that, that tax like they would, you know, that we now recognize in cigarette companies or, um, you know, um, petrol companies or alcohol. You know, we know those damages. We don't yet treat ultra-processed food and obesity with that same um, stick because governments are frightened that if the price of food goes up, they'll get kicked out of office. That's... That's what I think is the heart of this, that um, uh, the, the public is expects food to always be cheaper relative to their salaries. And it's progressively got cheaper over the last um, 100 years. So we're seeing now prices going up, and you can see how unhappy people are with governments. So that's the dilemma for, for government. And it's also the dilemma of, you know, short-termism, you know, to make an effect on obesity, it's a long-term project, really. Uh, and most governments are, you know, only interested in the next uh, two or three years. Yeah. You also have a chapter on food and how to eat for the planet. That is the way we now begin to need to, to, to begin thinking and, and acting, isn't it? 
Absolutely. I think, you know, our food choices are the most important things for our own health, undoubtedly, that we can make. But they're also the most important thing we as individuals can do for the planet and climate change, because it's the effect is far more than, say, your travel plans or, you know, how far you drive your car. Just by changing your meat and dairy consumption, you can have a massive effect on on the planet, and you you know you can vote yourself. You're totally in charge of that, and I think that is another message that runs through the book, which I think is the first book to really sort of look at all foods from a health, a ethics, and uh, an environmental impact view, and you know allows people to give you the information to make those choices. I think it does come down to individual choice about which of those three things you value more or uh, less. And so knowing that information, I think, is absolutely crucial. But certainly true if if we ate less meat, you know, we halved the meat and dairy we ate, um, this would have a dramatic effect and we would sort all the climate change problems out without having to worry about fossil fuels. Yeah. And again, it comes down to that, you know, long term plan and, and, and back into that circle of why governments don't want to make these unpopular decisions, which ultimately would be the best. Well, we can't solve it all here in one day, but you're you're giving it a really good, a really good go. Um, and I, I think people will, you know, really get a lot from any of your books. If you haven't read them, I'd highly recommend all of them. The Diet Myth, Spoon Fed and the most recent, as we've discussed here, is Food for Life, The New Science of Eating Well. You will find him, Tim Spector on Instagram. Professor Tim Spector, thank you so much for coming on. Been a great pleasure. So that's it for Alive and Kicking for this week. My thanks to my producer Aoife Breen. Thank you to Simon Keane and Hugo De Silva Scott, who was on sound. And thanks as ever to you for listening. I will see you next week. Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna, Sunday morning at 8 on News Talk.